I, again, I would like to welcome you to the 701st regular meeting. Tom Schott on Alexander Stevens and Jefferson Davis, A Marriage Made in Hell. Uh, unfortunately, I have a, an obituary uh, to tell you about. Uh, many of you know about uh, Father Bob Miller, who uh, wrote a book on uh, religion in the Civil War. Before Bob Miller uh, made his presentation to this roundtable about uh, religion in the Civil War, there was a gentleman by the name of Armin Wing. And uh, he was a, I've known, I knew Armin for uh, 30 years. He helped to uh, keep the uh, South Suburban Roundtable going. And uh, now he's from the, uh, he was living in the Quad City area. He was the main kingpin with the Quad City Roundtable. He was on many uh, Civil War battlefield tours with us. And he was also involved with the Medical Museum in uh, Frederick, Maryland. Anyhow, uh, when we were on the tour, on that Saturday, uh, uh, April the 30th, Armin passed away in uh, the Quad Cities. And uh, I just wanted to mention that uh, some of you knew who he was, and uh, maybe you might want to send something to his widow, Kay. Thank you. Donna Tui will announce uh, guests and new members. Good evening. Um, our special guest tonight and speaker is Tom Schott, sitting right here at this table with the interesting little ponytail. Yes. And our other guests include David Keller. Please stand up, David. Don Pitson. Where are you, Don? And Dorothy Pitson. And then, then I, I hope we have three guests at the um, lecture table. Mary Carr. Where are you, Mary? And Dennis Egan. Did I miss anyone? Is there anyone else back there? Okay. Welcome to you, too. Thank you. I'd like to introduce David Keller. Actually, Donna just introduced him. Uh, but he has um, involvement with um, the activities at Camp Douglas, and he's going to inform us all of that right now. Thank you very much. Um, I think you've been pretty well kept informed by Michael Weeks, who's been very, very involved with us uh, at the Camp Douglas Restoration Foundation. I was hoping to be able to make a big announcement tonight, but uh, I can only say, uh, and as you may know from what Michael said, uh, our objective is to recreate barracks from uh, old Camp Douglas uh, on the site as interpretive and education centers. One. Uh, on the Civil War uh, prison camps and Camp Douglas specifically, and the second facility on the African-American contribution to the Civil War. Um, I can only say we are this close to having a physical spot on the site of Camp Douglas where we think we can build. Uh, we'll be getting some announcements out on that soon, but we think it's a story that uh, needs to be told. Uh, we appreciate your support and certainly appreciate your loaning Michael to us to uh, participate on our board 
he's been a very important board member. So uh, we think it's something that's going to happen. We look forward to it, and we hope you can participate with us. Thank you. Okay, now it's time for the raffle. <clears throat> All right. Tonight's first winner, 241719. Don't forget, we have, we have the bookshelf back there where you can purchase books. We've got note cards and we've got photos from the tour. Pick the next one. Don't pick your own. <laughs> Let's go over to the bozo drum. <laughs> Two, four, one, eight, one, five. Nobody remembers the bozo drum? <laughs> you have to play to win. Cindy, pick one. <laughs> we don't want to know. <laughs> Three six two nine nine nine. You don't pick the last pick the last winner. Last three six two nine two nine. Nine twenty nine are the last three. <laughs> we raised one hundred and sixty dollars tonight. Thank you. Our quiz master, Tom Trescott. Hello again, everyone. Tonight's quiz, Tom Schott speaking on Alexander Stevens and Jefferson Davis, A Marriage Made in Hell. One, true or false, Jefferson Davis was at the top of his class at West Point. That's false. He was 23rd out of 33 in the class of 1828. Two, who said of a speech in Congress denouncing the Mexican War, Mr. Stevens of Georgia, a slim, pale-faced, consumptive man, has just concluded the very best speech I ever heard. My old, withered, dry eyes are full of tears yet. That was his fellow Whig congressman at the time, B, Abraham Lincoln. Three, Davis was briefly the son-in-law of what future president of the United States? That was Zachary Taylor. Uh, he married his, uh, Taylor's daughter, Sarah, but uh, he, she shortly contracted a fever, which Davis himself almost died of, and uh, he was shortly widowed, widowed. Four, true or false, Stevens was a fire-eating secessionist before the war? That's false. Actually, he voted against secession. Five, Stevens' notorious cornerstone speech created the first serious rift between Davis and Stevens and was of great value to the Union cause because A, it emphasized slavery over states' rights, which is the exact opposite of what Davis wanted uh, to stress. Six, which of the following was a favorite of Davis? That's C, William Preston Johnston, the, buddy of the son of his buddy, Albert Sidney Johnston. Now, the other three guys, not so much. Uh, seven, what personal tragedy did Davis share with Lincoln while both were presidents? 
Uh, they both lost sons. Uh, Lincoln's son's son, Willie, died in 1862, and Davis's son, Joseph, died in 1864. Eight, who did Stevens call one of the most remarkable men he had ever met, and who in turn was quite taken with Stevens? That was D, Ulysses S. Grant, who he met on the way to number nine. Stevens was part of the delegation to what conference, a peace, a peace initiative sanctioned by Davis, even though Davis thought and hoped it would fail? That was the Hampton Roads Conference of February 3rd, 1865. And finally, true or false, Stevens won elections to the U.S. Senate, the House of Representatives, and the governorship of Georgia after the war? That's true. Uh, we had two perfect tens. We had uh, Mike Weeks and, of course, White Sox Bruce. <laughs> I'm going to ask Tom to stay up at the podium as our most immediate past president. He has a slate of officers, uh, the election of the new officers, actually. Yes, it's me again. Hello. Um, as uh, chairman of the nominating committee, it was my honor to present the slate of candidates last month, and now I get to preside over the election for the officers for next year. So as I announce your name, will you please stand and remain standing throughout the election? And if you're not here, you can remain seated. Uh, for, for president, Bob Stoller. And Bob is in Florida. His son is graduating from law school. Oh, so we can stage a coup. Um, Senior Vice President, Brian Sider. First Vice President, Mark Matranga. Second Vice President, Paula Walker. Treasurer, Cindy Heckler. Uh, Assistant Treasurer, Jonathan Sebastian. Uh, Secretary, John Kachulko. Uh, Assistant Secretary, Mike Weeks. Uh, trustee to fill the vacancy with the term expiring in 2012, Bob Gibson. And also like to recognize the other uh, 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 trustees who, in that term, who are not up for election, but um, hopefully are here. Uh, Leslie Ellerdice, Mark Hunis, and Bjorn Skaptison. And for tr tr uh, trustees with terms expiring in 2013, Rick Branham, Tom Murray, Fred Johansson, and Dave Zucker. Are there any further nominations from the floor? Uh, so all those in favor of the slate as presented, uh, please say aye. Aye. Anybody opposed? Congratulations to you all. Larry Hewitt is going to announce our speaker this evening. Thank you, Ray. I, I know... Almost all of you are tired of seeing me up here, and this will make an end of a good run for me, in any case. Uh, tonight's speaker and I go back to August of 1975. We met it, uh, in Baton Rouge. We both happen to live on the south side of town, soon to be underwater. <coughs> he has written on a lot of things, uh, poetry, uh, cats, baseball, Civil War. Uh, his magnum opus was on Alexander Stevens, of course. I am not certain that it was the first book that LSU Press ever nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, uh, but it uh, was unfortunately beaten out in 1989 by a fellow named Richard Elman, who wrote a biography of Oscar Wilde. <laughs> I think after tonight you will all know that Alex Stevens was more interesting than Oscar Wilde. 
But with that, we have gotten time back in recent years to Civil War history, uh, written on things such as Lieutenant General Hardy, and he is co-editing a book with me on Lee and his or Lee and his generals, excuse me, that will be out next May. So with that, I give you Tom Shot. Thank you, Larry. Thanks for that really kind introduction. And thank you all for welcoming me. I have to tell you before I start exactly, Larry kind of brushed over the story of how I met it. And so I'm going to elaborate a little bit on it. Uh, we're both T. Harry Williams students, and so Dr. Williams asked me uh, when Larry came to LSU in 1975, why don't you go say hello to this guy? That's, that's pretty typical of the way T. Harry Williams was. He, he was a great guy to be a student for. So go, go see this guy. You're the one who lives the closest to him. I mean, sure enough, he only lived a couple of blocks away. So I went to see him. It was an apartment complex. He was on the second floor, and I knocked at the door, and he opens the door, and I knew immediately I was going to like this guy. He had hair down to here. <laughs> His belly bespoke more than a few Budweiser's. And he had a motorcycle, this is the second floor, in his living room, <laughs> in about five pieces. Was it five? I don't remember that part. It, was, was it, it wasn't whole. So that was, that was Larry Hewitt and I, and that's, we've, we've been good buds ever since. I doubt that uh, Alexander Stevens is, is more interesting than Oscar Wilde. Uh, <laughs> Perhaps, perhaps so, but I, I, it, it would be a toss-up, I guess, in my opinion. This is what I'm going to talk about tonight, uh, kind of a run-through. I, I had to debate on exactly how I was going to organize this talk for you all because, um, because uh, just a run-through of Stevens during the war, some sort of chronological approach, didn't seem too good. So this is the approach that I decided to take. I'm going to give you a, just a brief rundown of Stevens' uh, life, uh, talk about his election to office as the Vice President of the Confederacy, talk about him and Davis specifically, then the Civil War chronology for Alexander Stevens. I'm, it's going to be very brief, abbreviated, because what I'm going to tell you about is the times that he was actually at his post in Richmond, which was uh, not most of his time. Uh, and then finally, I'm going to talk about the issues that divided him from the Confederate government and hence from Jefferson Davis. I mean, you assume that if the government is in favor of it, it's a Davis policy. And the, the, as you will see, the relationship between Davis and Stevens uh, deteriorates as the war goes on. And then finally, I'll just kind of give you some thoughts at the end. If he looks skeletal, it's because... He weighed no more in his life than 90 pounds. Uh, typically between 80 and 90 pounds, he was six foot, he was uh, five foot seven in height, so he wasn't a shrimp. Uh, I'm gonna talk a minute about his uh, ailments. He described himself as a malformed, ill-shaped, half-finished thing. And there's a slew of reactions to people who first laid eyes on Stevens, and I'll give you a sampling. Um, one guy said, God damn, there's nothing about him but lungs and brains. 
uh, uh, Judge Colquitt from Georgia said, I could swallow him whole and never know the difference. <laughs> One observer, after listening to a speech, Stevens could sometimes go on for two or three hours in a hot Georgia sun, amazing, um, said he was surprised that he even lift, uh, lived to finish the speech. <laughs> the Union Century, as Stevens uh, was at uh, the headquarters of U.S. Grant before the Hampton Roads Conference, said, my God, he's dead now, and he don't even know it. <laughs> he was, however, a great speaker. There's uh, any number of testimonials to the fact that this guy could hold an audience in the palm of his hand. His, his voice, apparently, was not a big sonorous voice. He was, uh, was a kind of a shrill, piping, upper-pitched upper voice, but nonetheless, he was a powerful speaker, which in that century, of course, was a great asset. Uh, I want to talk just a little bit about his relationship with women. Uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, whenever I wrote this book and was looking at this guy closely, I'd been hesitant to even um, consider the idea that he was gay. Now, at least, I will say I'm willing to consider the idea. He never married. He was a lifelong bachelor. He met, there were several women in, the, in his life who were kind of wanted to mother him. I mean, he's an easy guy. The guy looked like he was going to die any minute. So, um, so there were several women like that. There, there was only one woman that I discovered that, that he showed any interest in at all, and it was not very long, and it was, it was pretty platonic. Uh, just one, this one quote uh, from, him, from him when he was in Washington, and he, had, he, was, uh, he was at this party where there was dancing, and he says, the affair, the aff he was kind of a prude, as you'll see. The affair was very pleasant, accepting some flirts and wriggling of some young ladies in attendance. Some of these were abominable, detestable, just such actions as I would expect to see in the vilest prostitutes in a whorehouse perform. Well, I mean, he may have been right, but I can tell you this, he never got within 10 miles of a whorehouse. <laughs> Just so we can locate where he spent most of the war, this is Tolliver County in Georgia. Uh, the, red, the red spot in the, in the county uh, shred out there is Crawfordville, Georgia, the county seat where Stevens lived. Just a brief rundown on this guy's life. He was born in Washington, Georgia. He was born poor. His dad was a dirt farmer, sometime teacher. Um, he went to school, high school and college, uh, um, by the generosity of benefactors. He took, the, he took the last name of one of them, so the H in Alexander stands for Hamilton, and his name is Alexander Hamilton Stevens. Uh, he graduated first in his class at, at Franklin College, which is now the University of Georgia in Athens. He taught uh, school for about four or five months in, in country Georgia schools. I said that people should get combat pay for that kind of job. Uh, he hated it. And from there, he moved on and spent about eight months on a plantation as a tutor to some rich people's uh, children. He finally passed the bar, and in those days, all you had to do was read, go before a judge, pass the judge's test, and you were a lawyer. He was a very successful lawyer. He made a great deal of money. 
dealing with the kind of things that Southern lawyers dealt with, usually questions of land and slaves. That was where they made their money. He was elected to the legislature, spent several years there in the Georgia legislature before he went to the U.S. Congress. In Congress, probably his, what he called the greatest glory of his life was he was very instrumental in passing the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which of course wasn't very popular up here. Um, he was, uh, we're going to talk about his vice presidency after the war. He was elected to the Senate. He wasn't allowed to take his seat. He finally went into Congress in 1873, where he stayed up until 1883, when he became the governor of Georgia. He served for four months, and then he died. He, he died in office. His, he was buried in Atlanta first, and his body has since been re relocated to a grave in, in front of his house in Crawfordville. You can't understand this guy unless you understand that he was a sickly individual. He looked like one, and he was one. Uh, this is a rundown of the chronic ailments that he had. Um, the pneumonia that he got caught three or four times in his life almost killed him. They were all nearly fatal. He was prostrated with pain lots of times by his rheumatism and the kidney stones likewise. The heart ailment was something he developed later in life. I got all of this in from that. I, I kept a, a careful medical record of this guy, and a doctor and I sat down and talked about it, and this is what we came up with. We weren't real sure what the heart ailment was, but it was pretty sure that there was one. His extreme sens sensitivity to the temperature is, we can document this because the guy wore unbelievable numbers of wraps and scarves and gloves and, and that sort of thing. When, when Lincoln saw him at the uh, Hampton Roads Conference and Stevens was taking off all of his wraps to, uh, to sit down and talk about peace, uh, Lincoln remarked, um, that's the smallest nubbin, nubbin I've ever seen come out of so much husks, husk. <laughs> these ailments these are occasional ailments, except for the last three. He had migraine, he had the itches, he had toothaches. He fell down the stairs once. He was in two train wrecks. He was almost killed by a 300-pound judge in 1848, whom he had the audacity to hit across the face with his cane. The guy came on him with a knife, and uh, Stevens almost lost his life. For a while, I can tell his, his handwriting is awful, but after he tried to catch this knife with his right hand, his writing hand, uh, and got it all sliced up, whew, it's really hard to, see, to understand his letters. Um, he suffered from depression up until the war started. And as the war started, he kind of came back to his old-time faith. He was a Presbyterian. When he was younger, he was actually kind of being groomed for the ministry. Uh, he, he left the faith. At one point, he said that the church almost, he was almost ship, shipwrecked by the church. Uh, but when the war started, he, he returned to it. And... And his depression began to leave him, but before that, it was deep and chronic. Just a few, a few quotes from, and these all quotes are from, uh, from uh, letters that he wrote to his half-brother. Men are like bubbles in a brook, he said. They burst without leaving a trace. Only difference between them is that some become more inflated, only to encircle a larger degree of vanity and emptiness. Everything is stamped with the impress of decay, he wrote on that occasion. Life is rapidly passing away, and soon all of us will be in the grave. 
little in the world is worth my attention as, well, as one who so soon must take his departure. He was 42 when he wrote that. Never was one more corroded with those things that make life a living anguish. I've been a poor, miserable being all my life, miserable all the time. And that is just a small sampling of the kind of thing that you can find for many years in his correspondence. This is his half-brother, Linton Stevens. I can sum up their relationship by something that he wrote about, about his brother. He said, he, he is the abode of all that interests me. They had an extraordinarily close relationship. They exchanged two or three letters sometimes daily from the time Linton was a student until Linton died in the early 1870s. Uh, and for a biographer, it's a gift from God because all of these letters survived, uh, except for about three that Linton burned. Linton Stevens is here pictured in his garb as an officer in the Georgia militia. He was not much of a soldier. He, he, had, he had, well, he stayed in the militia a little bit longer than he did the regular Confederate service, which he managed to last about three or four months. He was completely disgusted with what he, what he found was the incompetence of West Pointers, and he didn't like camp life either. The gentleman with Alec here, and later in life, obviously, in the 1870s, is a guy named Alec Kent. He took the name of his master because he was a slave before, before this. Uh, he said, Mars Alec is kinder to dogs than most people are to folks, which introduces another aspect of Stephen's character that I wanted to tell you about, and that's the man's generosity, his he was a big-hearted guy. Um, one of his friends wrote that he had no power whatsoever to tear himself away from beggars and tramps that would meet him on the street. I mean, he would literally empty his pockets. He died broke. He had no money because he had given it all away. Uh, he was indiscriminate in his charity, wrote another, wrote another one who knew him well. He paid for the education of over 200 uh, students uh, some of them were black students, and about 50 to 60 of them were women. Uh, he was indiscriminate in who he helped as far as that went either. Liberty Hall, his house in, in uh, Crawfordville, was always open to whoever happened by. Uh, a tramp down the going down the street who needed a place to stay, somebody who wanted to come in for supper. If you, sat, if you arrived at supper time, you got fed, even if, it, even if the cooks had to deal with, you know, two or three more people. He never turned anybody away. This went on whether he was at the place or whether, or whether he was in Washington or Richmond or wherever. Um, the, the, his house was always open. He was, as slaveholders go, what you would describe as benevolent. Um, all of his people on the plantation had passes. They could go and, go and come as they pleased. Uh, he had, there were no whips or overseers in his operations. Harry and Liza, a black couple, ran his plantation when he was in Washington. There were no white people there. Uh, nobody ever ran away from Stevens' plantation, except one guy, one guy that I know of who ran away when he was in Washington. And everybody on the place stayed there after the war. Stevens had all the trappings of a successful Southerner. He eventually had 32 slaves, and he ran a farm that was 
you know, a cotton form and also truck kind of vegetables. He was an honest man, an honest politician. He never took any more money than he made in his salary. And he never took money from constituents for doing them favors or for doing work for them. He made his money as a lawyer and as a planner. Okay, he was elected vice president of the Confederacy strictly on political grounds. Jefferson Davis, who we'll talk about in a minute, was uh, a secessionist, albeit a, a, a reluctant one, a, de a former Democrat. Stevens was opposite in both cases. Uh, at this point, at the point he was elected vice president, he could not, Georgia had, Georgia had missed the first spot. They had, they had two excellent candidates for president, Robert Toombs and Howell Cobb. These guys were passed over because Davis basically had the votes before the, before the convention started. He, he had it pretty well lined up, or he had, it, he had enough support that it wasn't much of a contest. Neither Cobb or, or Toombs were interested in the second spot, and they wouldn't have fit anyway for balance because both of those guys were pro-secession. So Georgia, the empire state of the South, the richest state in the South, couldn't be slighted when it came to the first two offices in the government. So Stevens kind of by default became the main guy uh, uh, to, uh, became the vice president that way. Uh, he, he fit the bill perfectly. He, was, he had opposed secession. He was a former Whig. And it was the kind of thing that the Confederacy wanted to present to the world, uh, a, a, a facade of unity, that, that everybody was in this together, that all party differences were, 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 taken care, were, were taken care of, swept under the rug, that no longer existed, because uh, all, everybody was uh, for this brand new nation, the Confederate States of America. And that was what they wanted to present to the world. Here's Jefferson Davis of Mississippi. He had served in the US Senate twice. He was a soldier in the Mexican War. Uh, Secretary of Def Secretary of almost said defense Secretary of War under Franklin Pierce. You might know about uh, Davis was a guy who tried to camels out in the southwestern deserts. He thought camels would be a good thing for the cavalry to have. I don't ever know how that thing turned out. I don't know if the camels died or ran away or what. But um, that's uh, d during his two years as Secretary of War. That was a high point. He was elected to the Senate again after that and was a, was a secessionist but a, but a moderate one. Uh, he would have been amenable to um, adjustments, to compromise. But he filled the bill for the kind of person who the Confederacy needed as president. Now, if you, start, if you think about who could have possibly held that post besides this man, uh, it's, it becomes, it's very difficult to come up with somebody who you say would be a better guy, who a guy who could have led the led the Confederacy better than this man tried to do. Uh, I don't I don't think, for example, Toombs, who really wanted the office, would have been stable enough. Robert Toombs liked the bottle too much. Uh, Howell Cobb was a snake, basically a political snake, and and I can't see him as being nearly as. Uh, as honest as Jefferson Davis and as stalwart as Jefferson Davis. 
Okay, here's the vice president and here's the president. You will see as you look down this list that they had several things in common. You will see also that they had several things where they were different. I would argue that it's both the things that they have in common and the things that they are different that made them so incompatible. By the end of the war, these two guys are like oil and water. And Stevens, doesn't, Stevens wears out his welcome fairly quickly after the war starts, as I will, I will uh, tell you about. I've already mentioned that they came from different parties, that they approached secession in a different way. Both of these guys had really thin skins. They were, they were, they were extremely sensitive to criticism. Um, both of them had giant egos. Both of them were self-righteous people. Both of them had quick tempers. I mean, think about this. This is your vice president and president. As many Southerners were, and many Northerners too, they were constitutional hair splitters. You know, they, they would argue the most, min the, they, would, they could go on for pages about minutia in the Constitution. Uh, Stevens' personality was completely different. Apparently, he was a hail fellow well met. He was a good uh, storyteller, a raconteur. Uh, he, he had a great sense of humor. Uh, there was always jolly, jolly around him. Even when he was writing these letters in private about how miserable he was, he got along great with people. Uh, Davis, uh, by all accounts, was kind of a standoffish, cold sort of guy. Uh, and he was not, and I emphasize this, a very good politician. His wife, Verena, said that... Um, he knew nothing about the art of politics, and he wouldn't practice the art if he knew. So, uh, whereas Stevens was a political animal, he just, he, he had political instincts. And, and so that, too, was, was part of the problem as a, as a team running this uh, new country. Every once in a while, Stevens could actually be talked out of things. He was, he was malleable to a certain extent. Once Davis made up his mind, that was it. The last thing on the list there is devotion to the Confederate cause, and I, I, I want to emphasize this. Is that Davis was no more devoted to the cause of the Confederacy than Alex Stevens was. They just thought it was a different way of approaching it. Uh, Stevens was no traitor. He was no, uh, uh, no uh, reunionist or anything like that. I'll show you a picture of Liberty Hall. I'm going to show you two of them. This is actually a reconstruct. This is his house in in uh, in Crawfordville. The, the the building there to the left is the is the is the uh, is the um, kitchen, which was fairly good size because of these people that were always there. That Stevens never ate alone. I mean, sometimes there'd be ten people there, and nine of them didn't live there. Um, so the kitchen had to be a fair size. This this is the, the is Liberty Hall after the war. It didn't look exactly like this during the war, but it pretty close. It's a regular four over four kind of uh, construction. Here's a, a look at it from the other side. I want you to note that building in the back, this is where Stephen spent most of his time. It was a study. It was, it's still pretty much the way it was when he left it today. Uh, it's full of all kinds of, the assortment of medicine bottles is unbelievable. Uh, there's books and papers strewn everywhere. But this was his abode where he, where he spent most of the war. 
here comes the abbreviated chronology. Now, the, the only thing that you're going to see in another color besides red are times when he wasn't, wasn't in Richmond or wasn't where he was supposed to be. And I'm going to talk about these two things. But I want you to notice that as we go along, Stevens is going to spend less and less time in the Capitol. And that's kind of a measure of how he was getting along with the administration, how he felt about the way things were going. Many, many times, I think it's already, it's already been mentioned, the cornerstone speech is the only thing that people know about Alexander Stevens. It's quoted all the time. Uh, and he gave this speech in Savannah shortly after the Confederate government was formed. The key, the key words, he, he said that the northern government was founded on the notion of racial equality. And now I quote him. He says, our new government is founded on exactly the opposite idea. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man. That slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. Well, this got published everywhere, all over the North, in Europe, and it was a great embarrassment to an administration that was trying to show that they weren't about slavery, they were about states' rights. So right away, Stevens plants this little seed of doubt in Davis's head about how reliable this guy is going to be. Uh, He was there, obviously, for his inauguration in February of uh, 1862, and he spent time doing his official duties, which he despised as president of the Senate. All he could do was sit there. He could vote if there was a tie. He couldn't speak whatsoever. So as he got more and more disenchanted with the administration, he spent less and less time in Richmond. Here's 1863. I'm going to talk about this peace mission uh, a little bit later on. He was, uh, he was sent to, 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 try and, uh, to try and have a conference with Lincoln right after the Battle of Gettysburg, during the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, in March of, of, of 1864, he spoke before the Georgia legislature, and this was the most public break that he made with the administration. He damned the administration for just about all of the war measures that it was taken, everything from conscription, suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, martial law, you name it, if it was a war measure, Stevens was against it. He went to Richmond finally again after many delays because he was ill and his brother was ill uh, in December and did everything he possibly could during the time he was there to foster any kind of peace moves. We'll talk about that in a little bit too. And of course in 1865 in February, the famous uh, Hampton Roads Conference, which we'll also talk about a little bit. This is Herschel Johnson. I just wanted to show you his picture. He is uh, one of Stevens' best friends. He's, a, he's a, uh, a, a senator, Confederate senator. He agreed with little Alex Stevens about everything. He agreed with him on all of his political positions, but his take on how he should operate would be, don't fight the administration. We have to, we have to, we, we, we have to swallow our, our objections because we have to we have to fight the war and and he told his friend he said look he says you're you're the second officer in the government you can't you can't do what you're doing you can't come out publicly well Stevens loved Johnson but he didn't listen to him
Okay, I want to talk a little bit now about the issues that Stevens had with Davis and with the government. This is probably, to understand, to understand the man, if you could grasp what we're, what we're talking about here, then you can, get, you, can get your, you can get wrapped around the mind of Stevens. He was, he was a guy who believed that the whole war was about liberty. The whole war is about liberty under the Constitution. That was why the South left the Union. That was why this whole war was being fought. Uh, he saw in the North a military despotism that had been already that had already happened. The, all of the constitutional rights of the people had been flushed down the drain, and that the South was the last best hope for these sorts of things. Um, that the right of a state to 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 determine its own destiny the right of individuals to be free from the encroachments by their own government. Uh, and he said that if the Confederacy lost, I mean, con constitutional liberty for anybody in the world would go down forever. So the Confederacy's fate was tied to this idea of, 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 of basic civil rights. That's what co constitutional liberties were to him. You can have several... Uh, informational type slides. Here is one of them. This is just a look at what the financial measures that were passed by the, by the South during the war. Uh, the key takeaway from this, from this uh, uh, litany of things here is that none of the measures, uh, the, bond, the bond issues, the produce loans, the taxation, none of it really worked. Uh, the taxes, they didn't c collect enough on any of this stuff. The specie, what hard money there was in the Confederacy, was gone in about six months. So increasingly, the Treasury had to rely, as all of you know, on fiat money. They printed money, printed money, and the inflation went through the roof. Um, Stevens, Stevens had actually not not too bad ideas on on uh, financial matters. He supported in the very beginning of the war, and in fact into 1862, uh, the idea that the government should buy cotton and use this cotton as credit in Europe to, to get warships, to get war material, and so forth. He argued that this was a lot more sensible than the official policy, which was to destroy cotton to create an artificial cotton shortage and thereby force European intervention. Uh, obviously, Stevens' idea was better Obviously, it was never done. He supported the produce loans. He always urged stiff taxation. Now, remember, I told you this man was born poor, and he suffered uh, real envy of his betters when he was a younger man, particularly in college. When he, when he left college, he had to go teach, and the people who were in college with him went to their plantations and their horses and their pursuits. So Stevens always had a problem with people who had lots of money, although he had lots of money himself. Uh, he said, he wrote, that independence will require money as well as blood. The people must meet both needs with promptness and firmness. He didn't trust the upper-class bondholders in the least. He thought, in fact, that they were a danger to Confederate independence. He wrote, Capital by itself has little patriotism above the brute instincts of self-preservation. I would not have it led into the great temptation 
of leaning towards any terms of peace short of independence. So he didn't, he didn't, trust, he didn't trust bondholders to stick with the Confederacy if they saw a way out. Now, so this is why he, was, he, was, he, he wanted to tax. He wanted to get But, the, of course, the Constitution, like a U.S. Constitution today, makes it very hard to get at, to get at people with lots of money. So he, he was not averse at all to having the government, Confederate government, coerce this money out of these people. He said, listen, if the government can conscript men into the army, it can certainly take money. It can certainly take goods, which is an illustration of here's a guy who's all about civil liberties, but when it comes to some issues, the central government can do these things. There was a scheme that was floated early uh, in 1863 about the Confederate uh, states guaranteeing the national, get, national debt. He, he opposed that uh, vehemently. The Confederacy passed three conscription acts. Uh, the first one, as the huge horde of McClellan was going, coming up the peninsula, the one-year uh, volunteers' uh, terms were about to end, they passed this act to keep, the, keep, the, keep those soldiers in the, in the ranks. Uh, they provided in the law for substitutions, which, which, which were also in the northern conscription law, and for exemptions that I'm going to talk about in a minute. As you'll see, the, the, the Conscription Act steadily raised the ages and lowered the ages of people who were eligible for the draft. The third Conscription Act, which is the, probably the most interesting one, eliminated um, about half of the exemptions. And many writers have remarked that it basically gave the central government and the Confederacy control of the entire labor market, which is pretty close to being true. Um, the overseer clause we're going to talk about here. And, um, this, this idea about authorizing free blacks and slaves is kind of revolutionary for a government that's founded on the idea that black people should be enslaved. And as you all know, later on, um, the, the idea of uh, using slaves as soldiers was floated in the Confederacy far too late for it to affect anything. The first exemptions, of course, to the draft as today, as always, were the politicians. They wrote themselves out of the law. Uh, the workers, factory workers, postal workers, hospital, railroad people, they were exempt. Telegraph operators were exempt. Ministers, teachers, as long as they had enough students, uh, and those other professions, the conscientious objectors were also exempt from the draft if they could come up with $500. Uh, they w this, was the only, this was the only exemption that had a price. Uh, and, of course, the mentally and physically disabled. The most controversial part of the, of the Confederate conscription law was this, was this 20 slave law, the, the so-called overseer clause. What this allowed was a an exemption of one white male if you had a plantation that had more than 20 slaves. And the people who got drafted, the people who were already in the army, were quick to see that, hey, if you're a rich person, you're going to get exempt from the draft. If you own a plantation, you're going to get, be exempt from the draft. And the same was true of substitutions. If, if you had enough money, you could buy somebody, you could buy your way out of the draft. Obviously, this system was, although it provided probably during the war about 90,000 troops to Confederate ranks, it certainly kept everybody in the ranks in 1862, early 1862. It never was a very uh, effective law, 
not least because it was opposed by people like this guy. This is Joseph E. Brown. He's the governor of Georgia. Now, Joseph E. Brown is a real oily dude. He, he landed on his feet like a cat no matter what. During Reconstruction, he became a Republican, and all the while this guy is amassing a good deal of money. He became a Republican, and then when the Republicans uh, got thrown out of Georgia, he was back as a Democrat, still succeeding, still making money. He became one of the triumphant in Georgia in the 1880s, Joseph E. Brown. Uh, this guy, uh, an oily snake guy, became not, not a friend of Stevens, but at least uh, a, a soulmate when it came to matters like conscription. Joseph E. Brown hated conscription because it, it um, narrowed his powers as a governor. He, so he therefore, so he, he, then, he, he then got about 10,000 people in the state exempted from Confederate conscription by somehow getting them onto the government uh, roles. Um, here are, are Stevens' objections to the conscription law. Now, the bulk of his objections to Davis, what Davis was doing, what Davis's government was doing, had to do with constitutional liberties, and we'll talk about some of, some of these briefly. He argued that conscription depressed the natural patriotism of people, which is kind of he made a lot of good arguments, but this is certainly one of his weakest. They passed the conscription law because people were getting out of the army. Stevens argued that if you didn't have conscription, people would be getting into the army. So, you know, this was his, this was his, this was his point, that if, 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 you, if you didn't have these laws, people would naturally respond to the needs of their country against all evidence. He argued that the only force that could be raised under the Constitution by compulsion was a state militia. In other words, no national compulsion was allowed. Uh, obviously, the, the whole law disregarded the people's personal liberties, and it struck its state sovereignty, as Brown had pointed out, because it, it allowed the national government to come in and wrest manpower that the state had. Stevens' real big issue was this one, uh, the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. It was used in the Confederacy sparingly, as you'll see, these only three, uh, these only three occasions. Um, uh, Lincoln, uh, Lincoln suspended the writ almost immediately, and I think it lasted throughout the entire uh, war. Um, the Confederacy was much more touchy about states' rights here and individual rights, and Davis wasn't able, after the last, the last one listed there, to get another one passed because the opposition to this thing, partly as a result of Stevens' agitation on the issue, uh, was, too, was too strong. Um, it... it it was, Stevens argued, like this. It was constitutional, but it was restricted, okay? It was very restricted because it had to guarantee all of these other rights to people, that they be, that they be speedily uh, go, go to trial, that they have full redress if they were falsely arrested, that the arrest had to be made on oath and probable cause, all of these lawyer things. Okay, but the point, uh, point, the point he made, the point that really irritated him was that the closure of the courts took away uh, people's only remedy if they were dragooned into the army. The, he, his, the bottom line was habeas corpus is all about enforcing conscription. It's all about making conscription apply whether or not a guy has a good reason not to be in the army or not. And he had some cases where people wrote to him that, hey, my dad, 
My dad is half blind. He's been, he's been drafted. Uh, my, my son is uh, subject to epileptic seizures. He's been drafted. And, of course, under the, when the writ was suspended, there, were no, there was no remedy uh, from the uh, provost marshals under these cases. This is the kind of letters that Stevens got. Uh, he also argued that you don't need this power because the present laws that prevent traitors and spies and saboteurs, which was su supposedly the, the idea why the law was passed, the present laws would take care of that. And as I've mentioned, what the whole purpose of it was, as far as he was concerned, was to muzzle opposition to conscription and to get guys into the army that didn't belong there. He hated with a passion the idea of martial law. In fact, he said uh, that the martial law was, was, was not even uh, something that could even happen in the Confederacy. He wrote to a guy named James Calhoun, whom Braxton Bragg in, in, middle, uh, in summer of 1862 had appointed the civil governor of, of Atlanta, the city of Atlanta. And Calhoun sent out this letter to, to Stevens and to the, some other Confederate senators and said, you know, I'm confused about my office. Can you, can you help me understand what it is? And this was one of Stevens' first public letters against the government that came out in September of 1862. He wrote to Calhoun, he said, your office is unknown to the law. It's a nullity. He says, General Bragg had no more authority for appointing you civil governor than I had. And I have no more authority than any streetwalker in your city. <laughs> he had no use for martial law. He had no use for the passport system, which was pretty severe in the Confederacy, limiting people's uh, uh, ability to travel, uh, requiring um, special passes for them to move to move across the area. This This was a a slight to personal liberties. And of course, the provost marshals who enforced all of these laws were also uh, persona non grata as far as he was concerned. As the war progressed, and the war went worse and worse for the Confederate states, uh, the idea of striking some sort of negotiated peace um, gained more and more favor. This was something that Davis opposed just uh, out of hand. Uh, Davis, uh, Davis said that any negotiations whatsoever had to be on the basis of Confederate independence or he wasn't interested in talking. Well, obviously, he never got any kind of, any kind of uh, feeler like that from, from the North. Uh, he, he, he decided he was going to stand aloof from all foreign elections, and, of course, that, that was the United States elections were a foreign country. He wasn't interested in their elections. Contrasted with Stevens and other advocates of peace in the Confederacy who were at, who were seeing the handwriting on the wall and said, look, we have to do something. We have to do something. So if we get a chance to negotiate, let's do it. You know, whoever, if we can get any semi-official body of the North to represent the North or the Northern government, better yet, let's do it. Any overture, any overture that's out there, let's grab hold of it. The Democrats, the Northern Democrats, the Peace Democrats, he was, without reserve, the Confederacy should stand up and say, we're all for the Democrats in the North. This is something that Davis refused to do. Uh, later, as the war uh, wound to its close and the Confederacy was on its back, uh, there were several states, North Carolina, Georgia, uh, that suggested that the states by themselves, that Georgia, for example, strike a separate peace with the uh, federal government. 
with, that North Carolina do the same thing. Stevens always opposed this. He was, he was the, cent, the, the, the Confederate government, our central government, is the only agency that can do this. So he wasn't so much anti-government as he was anti-lots of things the government was doing. He went on two peace missions, and I call them peace missions because they weren't really. Uh, the first one in 1863, uh, under the, the, the cover of uh, uh, trying to adjust the prisoner cartel, he went with uh, instructions from Davis that that was all he was supposed to do, to talk to Lincoln. He went on a, uh, a steamboat, and he got as far as Hampton Roads, and this was while the Battle of Gettysburg was going on. He was halted there. And on July the 5th, after the war, uh, after the battle had been won by the North, um, they s turned him around and sent him back. This was irritated Stevens no end because he thought, first of all, that any peace overtures ought to be made during times where the battlefields were quiescent. And secondly, because he thought he had basically been tricked into this whole thing. Uh, the second time that he uh, in, was involved in the, Hamp was in the Hampton Roads Conference, which almost everybody knows about, it, it was his biggest act in the entire drama. He and uh, uh, Justice Campbell, former Justice Campbell uh, of uh, the Supreme Court, and Robert M.T. Hunter, uh, a senator from Virginia, were sent uh, with instructions. There was, there was a typical diplomatic fu-rah-rah about wording. Um, Stevens, uh, um, Davis' message to uh, instructions to, to his uh, ministers were uh, to negotiate on the basis of, of, of our, our, our separate countries. Lincoln's uh, position was to negotiate on the basis of our common country. And this, would, this conference would have never been, taken place if it had not been for Grant. Grant uh, wanted it to happen. Uh, he met Stevens, was really bemused by the guy, but ended up uh, liking him very much, as Stevens, Stevens liked him. The day before the, the, minister, the, the Confederate ministers went off to talk to Lincoln and Seward, um, there was this huge party on, 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 on Grant's boat, 50 Union officers, George Meade was there and a whole bunch of others, and there was hilarity deep into the night. Stevens had trouble sleeping. And the next day, they were steaming off to meet Lincoln and Seward, and Ned Grant standing on the, on the shore, waving his, uh, he says, I've, here's the permission, you, have, you can go. And I'm sure that Alec Kent, who, the, the black uh, manservant who was with Stephen, must have wondered what in the hell kind of enemies these were. Well, we know that Hampton Roads uh, was, uh, was uh, basically a, a failure. By that time, uh, the, North, the North didn't need, need to negotiate anything. Uh, Stevens did get one favor out of it. Uh, as they were, they, there was a cordial talk for about four hours, and as he was putting on all of his wraps again, uh, Lincoln asked him, he said, is there, anything, is there anything more than I can do for you? And Stevens said, well, there is. Uh, my nephew, uh, Lieutenant John A. Stevens, is a prisoner, prisoner of war. Would you, would you see that he gets released? First thing Lincoln did when he got back to Washington was take care of this. Uh, John A. Stevens came to the White House and talked to the president. The president gave him an autographed picture of himself. And he said, here, there's not many of these where you come from. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
I may be going on too long for anybody who, who doesn't even care about this kind of thing. But, uh, but let me try to be brief in my summation. Stevens has lots of times just been labeled. He's been labeled a traitor. He's been labeled all thing, anything but you know, somebody who, was, who should be taken seriously. I think he should because, uh, as I hope I've shown, things were a little bit more complicated than, than just labels. You have to remember that in the Confederate States of America, there were no parties. There was no, in the North, there were Democrats. There were Democrats who could oppose uh, what the White House was doing. There was no such avenue for people who opposed what the government was doing in the South. Uh, so if the opposition took place, it had to take place under the same kind, uh, under the ways that Stevens and Brown and other Confederate governors made it take. The South was not a united uh, united at all, despite what they tried to uh, portray to the world, despite what they tried to tell themselves, they were extremely uh, divided. Uh, Sixteen votes in the secession convention would have kept Georgia in the Union, and God knows what kind of uh, what that would have meant for uh, the the secession movement. Uh, there were lots and lots of people in Georgia who didn't go to the polls on. On when they voted for these secession delegates because it was, a, it was the worst rainstorm the state had seen in 50 years. And so who was likely to vote were the ones who were fired up by the people who were for secession because the secessionists were out and they were about during the entire six weeks before this election, whereas the biggest people, the biggest names, the biggest names and biggest voices against secession did nothing during this campaign. So, so there's, there's these kind of intangibles. And recent scholarship is showing more and more that the South, the South was more, more divided on these issues, on these secession issues, than has previously been, been thought of. So there are, there, it's, not, it's not a united country whatsoever. So it's little wonder, the point is, there's little wonder that things fractured like this, uh, like Stevens. Uh, and, 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 the, and the administration very quickly. Now, I think it's, 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 it's rather obvious that the kind of thing that's, the kind of issues that Stevens address are the same kind of issues that we're talking about today. Uh, what, what's the, what's the, what, are civil, what do civil liberties mean? What do civil liberties mean in time of war? If you think about um, going on an airplane, I mean, you have given up part of your civil liberties to get on the airplane. It's a question. And if it's, if, it's a constitutional question because the Constitution embodies support for war and it embodies personal liberties. How long should wars go on? Stevens addressed this question. So the point is, um, the kind of issues that he was dealing with were the same kind of issues that we have today. We, the war itself was about issues. The war itself was about whether slavery was a moral institution, whether or not a state, what, what was the extent of a state's rights, you know, to, to stay or to go in the Union. What, how did the Constitution apply when it came to uh, the national government and its powers over the territories? All of these things are, are issues, principles, that, that uh, the country fractured over. Uh, we sometimes forget the, 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 the vast divide between these sections 
uh, on these sorts of questions. So principles are important. Principles are what, are what animate all of our political debate today. Now, could Stevens have been a better vice president? Certainly. I mean, we would, a president, any president would prefer somebody who supported his policies, much less uh, not support them in public. It would be, it would be, uh, would be the worst possible thing he could imagine. A marriage made in hell. A marriage made in hell. Thank you very much. Oh, sure. Questions? Yes, sir. Yes, my question for you is, uh, what was Alexander Stevens' feelings towards the Northern Copperheads and me and support or interest in that? Yes, he had a great deal of interest because it was a possible avenue for peace. He, he wanted the Copperheads to be successful. He thought Vallandigham was the best thing since sliced bread. Yeah, he, he saw them as a tool. Now, his idea was not to, to go to negotiations so that the war could stop and that it would eventually be a union again. His point was, if we can get negotiations, this was his point at Hampton Roads, if we can get, if we can get it stopped, if we can get the shooting stopped and have an armistice, who knows what we can finagle if we, if, if we get that. So that's where he came from on the whole idea of negotiations, and that's why he... He, he, he had such problem with Davis's position, which would like shut off all of that altogether. Does that help? Yeah. Yes, sir. I'm not familiar with what Instead of money, you could put up your crop. In other words, the, the government said, okay, we will, we will take foodstuffs for, tax, for taxes. We will take, we will t you, will, you, will, you can give us your corn. You can give us your livestock. That's what they were. They weren't very, they, the first one was more successful than the second, because, but both of them had to be bolstered with paper money. Sir. And given that there were conditions in the South of the political parties before secession, why is it that that tradition wasn't carried forward and an opposition that's a very good question. It probably would have been much better for people like Stevens had they had an opposition party. I argued that after May, when he spoke publicly before the, the Georgia legislature against the administration, that he should have, excuse me, he should have resigned his office. That, I think, would have been the most honorable course. But remember, what the, what the South wanted to present to people was the idea that we are we are one united happy bunch you know we are we are we are united in our idea that we should be a separate country we are united in the idea that slavery is a moral institution and so the idea of parties where you have open opposition that everybody could see was was more or less anathema to both sides to both sides yes sir i'm always bewildered by people such as Stevens, who supposedly were strong supporters of the Union and very much opposed to secession, and felt that way right up to the point that they actually had to make a decision, and then they went over the hill. Uh, my question is this. Stevens supposedly was opposed to the Union and in favor of secession because of the encroachments on constitutional liberties and, and the huge military state that, that Lincoln created. 
but he secedes along with Georgia before Lincoln has even been inaugurated. Uh, Jolly James Buchanan is still in the White House when, when he and his state secede. What assaults on the Constitution had taken place in the aftermath of the November 1860 election that motivated this man who was supposedly a deep constitutionalist? What motivated him to the supposed secession? Believe it or not, I have an answer. <laughs> Stevens had one country. Georgia was his country. When any Southerner talked about my country, they did not mean the United States. They meant their state. Now, Stevens did his best before secession. He stood up in the legislature with crowds spilling out of the hall and argued forcefully that the state should stay in the Union. Why? Because the North had done nothing to anybody yet. I mean, he, he argued, look, let's wait till these people slap us before we slap them back, you know? And he was, he was rowing against the tide. I mean, the tide in that convention was to get the state out. So, so, so yes, he, he loved the Union. He voted against secession. When the state finally voted for it, he had no choice but to sign the ordinance, which is what he did, which was what every Southerner who opposed secession did in any state. Does that help? I, 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 find, that, I find this concept to be utterly foreign. The notion that the state is my country, as though that flag with the stars and the stripes that had been flying for decades somehow was not it's very difficult for us here in the 21st century to, um, to get our heads back that far. I mean, historians do their best to do it, uh, we, but, we really, but we really can't. It's hard to understand um, how much hatred there was between these two sections. It's hard for me to understand because even during the war, there was lots of there was there was lots of camaraderie. Of the, the the officer corps melded into one another. The, the politicians all knew each other, and when the war was over, it was a very very uh, benign sort of sort of reconstruction that was put on the South. I mean, despite despite all of the yelps, you know, it was benign. I mean, how many people were executed for Pete's sake? One. So, so I, I, I understand your confusion, and as a historian, it's, 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 it's the biggest challenge to try, and, try and, and get the present out of your mind so that you can deal with where these people were at the time. Some people are more successful at doing it than others. I'm not sure that's very helpful. It, apply, it applies to Lee as well. I mean, Lee, who has spent an entire lifetime in a uniform that has the letters U.S. on it, suddenly decides in 1861 that his country is a place called Virginia. I mean, th this is not this is not a 20. It wasn't sudden. It wasn't sudden. It wasn't. His country was always Virginia. He served in the United States Army, but when it came down to you know when it came down to rocking a hard place, his country. He went with his country. Hey, Bruce. Uh, Tom, uh, Davis was limited to one six-year term by the Confederate Constitution. Right. 
was there, did Stevens ever have any notion of running for the second Confederate president in 1867? Hell no. He was, he, he, the worst nightmare that he had was that Davis would somehow die. I mean, he's on record. I don't want any part of this. People are not going to let me do what I want to do. You know, it's, it's, it's way too scary. You would be unique among vice presidents. Right? <laughs> I think he is anyway. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think uh, is an ideal role for Confederacy should have been? I'm sorry? What, what uh, do you think uh, Stevens' ideal role should have been for Confederacy? Oh, you mean if he wasn't vice president? I don't think I've ever gotten that question before. Um, I don't see how he, he could have done any more harm to the war effort by being a private citizen, because he certainly wouldn't have been silent. I can see no really role for him in, in the government, unless he would be involved in the state government of Georgia. I don't think he would have been interested in that office. He took the national office because he he kind of secretly believed that, well, maybe virtue's going to triumph after all. He had some mixed motives for taking, for, for accepting this nomination. Uh, but one of, them, one of them certainly was, look, maybe I can do some, maybe I can do some good. Maybe I'm in a, in a place where I'll be able to affect things. And Stevens, I mean, Stevens, to be influential was his nirvana. To be politically influential was what, was what drove him. And so you can understand that once he got kind of put out on a siding pretty quickly, he soured on, he soured on Davis personally, and that just fueled his, his ideas about what the government was doing wrong anyway. Yes, ma'am. What did Stevens do after the war ended? Well, he uh, went back to uh, Crawfordville. He was imprisoned in Fort, in Fort Warren in Boston Harbor. He was there for about six months. He got back to home in October of 1865. He was elected almost immediately to the Senate, to the U.S. Senate. wasn't allowed to take his seat, and uh, he wrote uh, a rather turgid two-volume uh, argument for secession, for the for the for the legality of secession, called a constitutional view of the late war between the states. So that took up his time until he was reelected again to, to the House in 1873. And he spent the rest of his, the balance of his time uh, in public life. He spent his, most of his life in public life. He was an invalid. Um, he was an invalid. In 1869, a heavy gate fell on him. It was, it was not on his hinges. It fell on him and damaged his uh, sciatic nerve, and his, he couldn't walk after that. So Alec Kent, who you saw a picture of there, had to carry him up and down stairs. Uh, and that was also the occasion of the morphine. He was a morphine addict at, at the end of his life. He started taking gargantuan quantities, according to doctors, uh, like seven and a half milligrams of morphine, like three times a day, every day from, say, 1870 till he, till he died. He, he had alcohol, too, every day by the tablespoonful. He called it his Jeff bottle of Jeffersonian democracy. But... <laughs> Every day one. So I'm not sure the guy wasn't addicted to alcohol either. Yes, sir. What, what did Stevens think about the whole Confederate experiment in the post-war years? It was 
it was right and proper. A state had, a state had the absolute right to leave the Union. Uh, the states, whether or not they were provoked to the extent he thought they should have been provoked to get out, still had the right to go out. You know, because what, 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 what the Constitution was was a compact between independent sovereign states. Independent sovereign states, it was not any kind of marriage. It was a legal arrangement. We're in here until we, don't, we can't survive in here anymore. Oh, yeah, the union's great. But if the union is a threat to, to the state, the state has the right to leave. Well, is it fair to say that Stevens felt that secession was legal but unwise? Yes. Not, and he wasn't the only one. I mean, there were lots of anti-secessionists in the South. But, the, but, but when, it, when it push came to shove, it was, never, it was never secession is illegal. It was whether or not it was, it, whether or not it was smart at the time. That was, what, that was, that was the question, whether or, not it's, whether or not it's wise to do this, but not whether or not it's legal. That was never a question. We have time for one more question. I got two more hands. Let me have two. Okay. Yes, sir. Why was Stevens released and Jefferson Davis still in jail? Man, that is, that is a good question. I, I think the answer is because Jefferson Davis was the bigger and more hated symbol. Alexander Stevens was a guy who was easy to like. He was in Fort Warren Harbor for about three weeks, and then he got this nice cell, and then he was in this nice cell for a while, and they gave him a larger. Then he got kind of the, 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 the run of the place, he had visitors from Boston bringing him fruits and vegetables. Uh, his, his brother came up there to visit him and met this woman who was bringing him fruits and vegetables, married her. <laughs> so he was a politician. Well, he's a great politician. Yes, sir. This is the last one. Uh, occasionally, not much. Uh, she, she found him, she said, very interesting, but way too, uh, way too uh, depressive for her, her taste, way, way too pessimistic for her, for her taste. And then as he became more of a public anti-administration figure, she didn't have too much good to say about him when she mentioned him, didn't have much use for him. Thank you, Thank you very much. On behalf of the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago, I'd like to present the silver medallion to you, Thomas Schott, May 13th, 2011. Thank you so much. Thank you, too. I appreciate your hospitality. Thank you so much.